All right, well, we're continuing our series in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 3 today. That's on page 2 and 3 in your uh, pew Bibles. And uh, if you are with us and you don't own a Bible, these mustardy, golden, roddy, whatever color Bibles these are, um, these are ours and they're yours to keep. The brown ones belong to Portico, who meets here in the morning. Uh, so please don't run away with those, but uh, you can take one of these ones. Got to get my clip on here. All right. Well, how many Star Wars fans do we have here? Raise your hands. Hi. Quite a few. Okay. <laughs> Well, why is it that we resonate so much with the story of Star Wars, with the series, with all the movies? I think there are two scenes in particular uh, that I just thought of right away uh, that kind of capture our fascination, that capture this, you know, why do we get into this story? The first one is in episode three where Mace Windu is... uh, has his lightsaber and Palpatine's on the ground and he's about ready to kill him and then Anakin defends Palpatine and then Anakin turns to the dark side and there's just this like, no, what's he doing? Ah, uh, This wrestling, this, this temptation. Then in episode six, Return of the Jedi, uh, when Luke and Vader are, are dueling and then uh, Vader goes down and the Emperor tells Luke to fulfill his destiny and to turn to the dark side and Luke stands up and says I will never turn to the dark side and we're like yes and then you know Vader picks up the emperor and throws him down and oh the good side wins but this these ideas of of light versus darkness of good versus evil of people facing temptation some giving into it some overcoming it you know why does generation after generation it's been over 40 years since the first Star Wars movie, and if you look, you know, who raised their hands, we're looking across multiple generations in this room. Why does generation after gener- generation continue to resonate with this story? You know, there's plenty of stories that, movies that might have came out in the late 70s, early 80s, that kids today would be like, that's really dumb. Um, Star Wars is just one of those movies that is just, it's timeless because it resonates with us because it addresses the very struggles that we face in our lives questions about our identity questions about who we are and where we come from questions about our destiny right fulfill your destiny we've been arguing so far in the book of genesis been looking at our world been saying that we find ourselves today in a world with many competing narratives, with, with conflicting worldviews that are trying to answer some of the deepest questions of life. And I've said it, and I'm going to continue to say it, Genesis is as relevant as ever. We've been talking about this framework that we see kind of across the whole Bible, but we really see a microcosm of it here in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And this is that story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Chapters 1 and 2, we saw creation, right? 
We saw God creating all things and that it was very good, that it was perfect. Chapter 3, we're going to be introduced to the fall. And we're also going to be introduced to the first glimpse of redemption. I think Genesis 3 is probably one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Because it tells us who we really are and how we got into this mess in the first place. Chapters 1 and 2, kind of in a weird way, I think have felt a little distant, right? A little hard to relate to. Uh, We don't know, we haven't lived that story, right? We haven't walked in paradise with God and been naked and unashamed, right? How chapter 2 ends. We haven't lived that. Now there's maybe something deep inside of us that longs for that, but we have have not actually experienced that reality. Now we come to chapter 3, This is our story, right? This is the story of the world as we know it. It's the way that we find things today and the way that our lives are playing out. So there are two key questions that I think we are all asking. The first one is related to the fall, and that is, why are things as they are? Why is this world, as we talked about in our confession, as we talked about in our congregational prayer, why is this world the way that it is? It's the first question. The second question related to redemption. How can they be put right? Things in the world are not the way they should be. So how can they be put right? How can these problems be fixed? Let's go to the text and see. Genesis Chapter 3, we're actually going to start in uh, Genesis 2, verse 25, the last verse there. Genesis 2, 25, we'll read through 3, 24. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, 
and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this afternoon, would you remind us of the story that we find ourselves in? Remind us of the reality of this world because of the sin of our first parents. But Lord, would you also point us to the hope that we have in you, the hope of redemption, the hope of the promise. Let us not lose hope, Lord, when things are difficult. Teach us from your word. Show us yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We started in chapter 2, verse 25, because that's how we ended last week. We looked at this perfect situation, this perfect creation, this perfect paradise. And today we're going to see all of that unravel. We're going to look at the story in four scenes. If you're taking notes, I'll, I'll repeat each of, each of the scenes. The first scene is Rebellion leading to shame. You see that in verses 1 through 7. Rebellion leading to shame. The serpent comes and approaches Eve and he confronts her with a lie. And this is not just any old lie. It's the very source of all of our trouble. The lie is, did God actually say... The lie is, 
don't believe him, doubt the word of God. That is the first lie that entered into the world. To which Eve responds with her own twisting of the truth. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. True. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. True. Neither shall you touch it. (laughs) God did not say that. Eve now is twisting the truth. The second lie, neither shall you touch it. Lest you die, true, God did say that. Then the serpent responds in verse 4, You will It's just not true. And we all know it from personal experience. Kids, if you haven't experienced it yet, I'm sorry to break the burst your bubble, but you can't just do whatever you want to do. Life is hard. Relationships are hard. You don't have unlimited resources to do whatever you want to do. And even if you did, it would still be hard, right? Because there's sin in the world. Well, how are all these attempts at autonomy working out for us? And I don't want to just Talk about American culture and our excessiveness and and our man-centeredness. How is this working out for humanity? Have you seen the news about the situation in Syria? I think just 500 people just died in the last week. We know about things that are going on in North Korea. Right? We're we're so enlightened in the last 100 years. But look look at the chaos and the craziness in this world. If we're so advanced scientifically and so advanced, why, why, do these, why are we going backwards? And I think it's easy to just point the finger out there, right? Like, oh, look at, you know, Syria, or look at North Korea, or look at these people wherever. What about us? What about our own hearts? How are we doubting God's word? Where are we saying Did God actually say? It's not really that bad. It doesn't really cause me to stumble. Everyone else is doing it, right? It all starts with this question. Did God actually say? And then it spirals downward from there. It's where all of the justification For our sin starts. We see what happened to Adam and Eve as a result of doubting God's word and disobeying his command. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Satan promised them that their eyes would be opened. Their eyes were opened. But what they saw was not what they expected to see. They saw their own nakedness. They saw their own shame. And then what did they do? 
They covered themselves up. They tried to hide their shame. But we don't do this, right? We don't try to cover up our own nakedness, our own shame. We don't sew fig leaves together. We don't use our jobs or our relationships or our money or our education or our social status. We don't use those things to cover up the truth about who we really are, do we? Scene two, rebellion leading to fear and blame shifting. Verses eight to 13, rebellion leading to fear and blame shifting. Adam and Eve attempt to hide themselves from God. And then the interrogation from the Lord begins. Verse 9. The Lord called to man and said to him, Where are you? Adam replies, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The Lord replies again. Verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, (laughs) verse 12, the woman made me do it, right? The blame shifting starts. But there's a problem, Adam. Let's go back to chapter 2. Eve wasn't even created yet when the command was given. So, Adam, you're not getting off the hook here. You can't blame her. You're the one who the command was given to. Verse 13. The Lord said to the woman, What is it that you have done? Eve, taking a cue from her husband, blame shifts. The serpent made me do it. And round and round and round we go for all of human history, right? It's always someone else's fault. Somebody else made me do it, right? It's not my, I mean, it's not really my fault. I had a bad upbringing or, you know, I was dealt a bad hand. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher, British preacher in the mid-1900s. Has a book of sermons on Genesis The gospel in Genesis actually starts with Genesis chapter 3. So I've been reading that a lot this week. His sermon on, there's one of the sermons is on verse 9 alone, the question, where are you? Lloyd-Jones says, if you have a discussion with people about religion and about Christianity, you will always find that they talk as the investigators. So when we talk about things like God and the Bible and Jesus, God and the Bible and Jesus are always on trial in people's minds. They are coming with the questions. They are coming as the investigators. He addresses this, speaking of the question, where are you? 
He says, and that is the first thing men and women realize when they are on their way to becoming Christians. Throughout their lives, they have never faced themselves at all. They have been protecting themselves. They have been putting up camouflage to conceal themselves. That is the meaning of all the arguments and disputations about these various questions. Something is coming that's going to be a little bit personal and may be difficult. Very well, let's hide behind the trees. And we hide behind the trees of these philosophies and ideas and comparative religions and abstruse questions. And as long as we are there, it is all outside us. But God penetrates through it all. It is about you, my friend. You as an individual at this moment. It is all about you and your life and what you are doing with it and where you are going. Has it come personally to you yet? This week, we had a family over for dinner, and I was sharing my testimony about how I became a Christian in college, how I'd grown up kind of with a general knowledge of of who God was, but I was not walking with the Lord, and I was telling this story, and the man said, well, what what did the guy ask you, what did did the guy say to you, you know, the guy who was sharing the gospel with you? And the first thing that he asked me, the first question was, how's your relationship with the Lord? And I had been pondering the questions God is asking Adam here, and I was thinking about that question that my friend asked me. The question was, Josh, where are you? Right? Tom didn't come to me and say, Well, what do you think about the Bible? What do you think about Jesus? Where are you? He didn't ask me who is to blame for all the problems in my life. When the God of the universe confronted me with that question, I knew that I was the only one to blame. I was in rebellion against him. And I had some questions to answer. I was naked and exposed before the God of the universe. Let's go back to the unfolding drama in the garden. The scene shifts again. And God is going to speak and to pronounce his judgment on the serpent and on Adam and Eve. Scene 3 here, starting in verse 14, 14 through 19, we see the undoing of the perfection of creation. The undoing of the perfection we saw in chapters 1 and 2. The perfect creation is undone. Verses 14 and 15. We saw in chapter chapter 1 and 2 that man was, was called to have dominion over the animals. There was to be harmony with nature. Man to have harmony with relationship with animals. Now the serpent is cursed. He's put on his belly. He is told that he will eat dust all the days of his life. Eating dust in the Bible is a picture of judgment. And God says that he will put enmity between him and the woman. And between his offspring 
and her offspring. And we will come back to this in a little bit. So perfect creation is undone. And we looked at this last week in chapter 2. We looked at perfect creation, perfect location, perfect vocation, and perfect equation. Next we see that the perfect equation is undone. Verse 16. In chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply. We saw the two would become one flesh. There's a picture of unity there. But now, mothering will be painful. Pain in childbearing will be multiplied. And I don't think this is only talking about the birth process. I think this is talking about the process of raising children is going to be a difficult one. And I won't ask for amens because I know I will get them. And we, we love our children, but it is difficult. It becomes difficult. Being a wife now will be a constant battle. Different translations, your desire will be for your husband or contrary to your husband or against your husband. And he will rule over you. We're going to see this language of ruling over coming again in chapter 4 with Cain and sin. So this is not a good thing. Adam and Eve were told to rule over the creation. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that kind of ruling. But this kind of ruling that is now introduced is, is friction and strife. It's not the unity that we saw in chapter 2. The perfect vocation is undone in verses 17 to 19. Chapter 1 and 2, we saw plants and trees that were given for food for Adam and Eve. They were told to work and keep the garden as God's priests in the garden temple. Now the ground is cursed and work will be painful. Instead of plants and trees growing up by themselves and Adam just having to do the easy work to take care of them, now there are thorns and thistles to contend with. And we feel this, don't we? This isn't just something that, oh, farmers and gardeners and people who are actually working in the soil experience this. We experience thorns and thistles in our work, don't we? Probably almost every job that any of us are doing, we're doing that job because there's some lack, there's some problem, there's some need. We're there to fix a problem. It's thorns and thistles. It's an undoing of the perfect vocation. And then we come to scene four, the closing, closing the gates of paradise. From verse 20 through 24. Closing the gates of paradise. So we saw the perfect creation undone. The perfect equation undone. The perfect vocation undone. Now we see the perfect location undone. In verses 22 to 24. The perfect couple. Who were given a perfect job to do. In the perfect location in paradise. They are now banished. Never to return. Prevented from reaching out their hands so that they could take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Meredith Klein speaks 
of this interim world after the fall as an exile existence in a wilderness under the shadow of death. An exile existence in a wilderness under the shadow of death. And that is our experience. Death is the major consequence of the fall. And it's not just physical death. It's spiritual death. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. Your soul is going to die. You will perish in hell forever if you die in your sin. That is the message from Genesis 3 onward. God told Adam in chapter 2, The day that you eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Satan came to Eve with the lie, said, you will not surely die. As we saw earlier in our assurance of pardon, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul says, in Adam all die. I know I've shared some lines before, some lyrics from Shailen, uh, my favorite Christian hip-hop artist. He has a song and an album called The Atonement, which is called In Adam All Die. I'd highly re- if, even if you're not into hip-hop, just go check it out. Shylin, you can watch it on YouTube. The song In Adam All Die. This is the chorus from the song In Adam All Die. He says, We're cursed from our birth, sinning from the beginning, the womb to the tomb, Depraved to the grave, astray every day, every breath brings death. In Adam all die, in Adam all die. We're rebels like the devil, scheming like demons, prideful with our idols, disgusting with our lusting, twisted and sin-sick, selfish and helpless. In Adam all die, in Adam all die. That's a great summary of the results of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Of the struggles that we face in this life, right? The womb to the tomb. It's pain. It's heartbreak. But the story doesn't end there. If it did, it would just be a miserable existence for humanity. I had a friend a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Y. I was talking about some things. He said, are you afraid to die? I was like, no, man, I'm excited. I said, I mean, mean, I'm not like excited to leave my wife and kids, but no, I'm not afraid to die. I get to be with the Lord forever. Death should not strike fear in us. Death does not have the final word. If it did, it would be a miserable existence. And I said to him, I said, you know, the only two options are you either, you know, you end it all, right? Like, that's the one extreme. Or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You just live it up, right? If there's no God, like, those are your options. But that's not <laughs> our reality, right? Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. Though God had every right to kill them for their rebellion. 
But there is a death that occurs. Before the gates of paradise were closed, the gates of mercy were opened. Let's say that again. Before the gates of paradise were closed, the gates of mercy were opened. You might notice that we skipped over verse 21. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We've asked the question, is Jesus in the Old Testament? And the resounding answer is yes. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our only hope of salvation. And here we see this picture, right? Where did these garments of skin come from? I don't think he's talking about the skin of a, of a pear or an apple, right? An animal had to die. Something had to die for Adam and Eve to be clothed, to be covered, for their shame to be covered. The gates of mercy are opened here as God kills this animal and clothes Adam and Eve. We're going to kind of work backwards through this passage to see how Jesus is in the Old Testament. That's the very first one. That's a picture of the lamb who will be slain to cover our sin. The next one is in Genesis 3.15, which is probably many of you are familiar with. The promise God will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is, theologians call this the proto-evangelium, the early gospel, the first evangelistic message. It's the promise that I believe Adam and Eve left the garden to face the wilderness, to face life outside of the garden. But they they left with that promise. They left with that seed of hope that one day this would change. One day this situation would be reversed. There's a really cool promise in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. It's kind of hidden in all these greetings that Paul has. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's writing to the church in Rome and talking about the victory that we have in Christ. And there's this great picture of Christ crushing the serpent under his feet. And then we will see a reverse of the curse, right? We talked about an undoing of all of the things that we saw last week in chapter 2. The perfect creation undone, the perfect equation undone, the perfect vocation, perfect location, all those things undone. But Christ is going to reverse the curse and he's going to redo the undoing of all those things. Right? Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Look at Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? This picture of, of marriage, of God being united with his people. The picture of, of the new Jerusalem, of the temple, 
of the river flowing out, of God being the light, of the Lamb being there. All of the things that were undone in chapter 3 are going to be redone again by Christ. Our question in the New City Catechism, we talked about how Christ perfectly obeyed the whole law. In his human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. This including this included overcoming temptation. We looked at those verses in Hebrews about our high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness because he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. If you remember early on in Luke's gospel, Luke, actually Luke has a genealogy in his gospel. Thank you, James, for pointing this out to me this week. Luke has a genealogy in his gospel that's similar to Matthew's, but Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Luke chapter 3 ends, talking about the genealogy of Jesus here, it ends, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Jesus is pointed back to how he came from Adam. And then chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, and he is tempted 40 days. He's being tempted by the devil. He didn't eat anything. He was hungry. The devil comes to him and tempts him in many ways. The original temptation to Adam and Eve was to doubt God's word. Did God really say And Jesus, three times in the face of unbearable hunger, temptation, hey, just just make this stone turn into bread, right? Just meet your need. Come on, it's not a big deal. Did God really say? And what does Jesus do? Three times. It is written. It is written. It is written. Yes, God really said. The first Adam brought death and condemnation. And the last Adam has brought life and reconciliation to God. Are you trusting in him as your only rescue from death? As the only one who can cover your sin and your shame with his mercy. Again, Genesis is as relevant as ever This is our story. It's the story that we find ourselves in. It's the story of what God has done to rescue his people. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We wait for that day when God will make all things new. Brothers and sisters, let us wait in joyful hope. Let us trust in him and in his mercy. Let us look to Christ as the only one who took our place and can continue to take our place. And let us live through him. Let us live with the power and the strength that he gives as we live our lives in this world. Let's pray.
God, we, we stand in awe of, of what you've done to save people from sin, to save people from themselves, from the destructive consequences of, of lies and, and disobedience, trying to cover ourselves, to cover our own shame. God, you provide the covering. Just as you provided for Adam and Eve in the garden by killing an animal. God, you sent your own son and killed him so that we might live. Father, let us rejoice in that mystery. Let us rejoice in that gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.